Make the world a better place. Make the world a better place. Make the world hey, hey, welcome to the season four premiere of Better Place Project. Welcome back, Aaron. How are we doing? Great. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for coming back to us and listening to our first episode of season four. This episode is a really special one. I feel like we say that with everything, but I'm super excited (laughs) to get in. Yes, this definitely is a special episode. This is a topic that we talked about way back in season one. And to have this very, very special guest that we have today on our show to share her story is just an incredible way to kick off the season. And if you haven't heard her story, by the way, and how she ended up fighting so passionately for this cause, you're going to want to listen to this entire episode. And her cause, raising awareness about a global tragedy, is really something that affects all of us. After all, we all came into this world via childbirth. Pregnancy and the birth of a child is supposed to be a time of joy, full of laughter and hope and celebration. But unfortunately, far too often, things go tragically wrong. Every two minutes, a woman dies due to complications from pregnancy and childbirth. And our guest today, whom you all know, is trying to change that. Erin, tell us about our guest today. Every Mother Counts founder, Christy Turlington Burns' work in maternal health began after experiencing a childbirth-related complication in 2003, an experience that would later inspire her to direct and produce the documentary feature film, No Woman, No Cry, about the challenges women face throughout pregnancy and childbirth around the world. Under Christy's leadership, Every Mother Counts has invested nearly $21 million in programs in Africa, Latin America, South Asia, and the United States focused on making pregnancy and childbirth safe for every mother everywhere. Before founding Every Mother Counts, Christy received international acclaim as a model representing the world's biggest fashion and beauty brands. She was the founder of Nuala, a yoga lifestyle brand in partnership with Puma, co-founder of Sundari, a skincare based on the principles of Ayurveda, and the author of the best-selling book, Living Yoga, Creating a Life Practice. Christy has been featured on thousands of magazine covers, was one of Time's 100 Most Influential People, and Glamour Magazine's 2013 Woman of the Year. In March 2016, EMC was recognized as one of Fast Company Magazine's top 10 most innovative not-for-profit companies. Christy graduated cum laude from NYU's Gallatin School of Independent Studies and studied public health at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. She currently serves on the Yale Nursing School Dean's Leadership Council and the Smithsonian Institute's American Women's History Initiative Advisory Committee. Previously, she has served on the Harvard Medical School Global Health Council, the Harvard School of Public Health Board of Dean's Advisors, and the Advisory Board of New York University's Nursing School. Christy lives in New York City with her husband, filmmaker Edward Burns, and their two children. Christy is such a compassionate person who you can just tell by talking with her that she has such a deep desire to lean into these problems that society hasn't been acknowledging. And she has really made it her life's work to advocate for women's health and childbirth. And Christy just oozes authenticity. I already admired her, but after this conversation and learning more about her work, I just have 
mad respect for her and the work that she and her team are doing. I mean, here's a woman who's had just an incredible career who could be sitting back and enjoying the fruits of her labor, but instead she's dedicating her life to helping others less fortunate, which is pretty stinking cool. So in today's episode, we chat with Christy about her childhood and her journey that led her towards this life's work. We chat with her about her full-featured documentary, which is amazing, by the way, and her short films, which, while watching these, has just been such an eye-opener for Aaron and me, where we've learned some shocking statistics that are going to blow your mind. For example, here in America, childbirth is actually less safe now than it was a couple generations ago. That is just crazy to me. And the facts about the disparities in childbirth mortality rates in women of color versus white women are just simply appalling. We also chat about COVID-19 and the effect that that has had on maternal health care and just so much more is packed into this episode. So without further ado, our conversation with the founder of Every Mother Counts, Christy Turlington Burns. Make the way. Hello, Christy. Welcome to the show. Hi, welcome. Hi, thanks. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. And before we dive into all the incredible work that you're doing there with Every Mother Counts, can you share a little bit of what your early childhood was like growing up in Northern California? Sure. Um, I mean, it was pretty idyllic, I guess. Um, I I grew up um, in the East Bay Area of San Francisco um, to uh, parents who both had worked for Pan Am Airlines, the airlines, because some people don't even know what Pan Am was because it's been gone for so long. I remember it. <laughs> My first flight to, to London was on Pan Am. So yes, okay, I'm old enough to remember. I'm quite a bit older than you. So I do remember that. But yeah, my father was a, a pilot and my mom was a flight attendant. Uh, my mom was from El Salvador, actually, and immigrated to the United States in the late 40s and grew up in L.A., um, but she was based around the country um, in her role as a flight attendant for the years that she flew, and so she was living in Sausalito at the time. My dad grew up in a very small, small town, um, central northern California, and then um, went to high school in Oakland, and then when my parents got married, they moved us further out to the burbs. Um, outside of Oakland. And I'm one of three girls um, between my parents, but my dad was married previously and has two children from that marriage. And so there are five of us all together. Gotcha. Um, okay. The, the three of us that grew up together and under the same roof and are within three years apart, we're kind of the, you know, the closest grouping, I guess, because of our ages. And I understand you're the middle of those three, correct? Yes, I am the middle. That stood out because Aaron is my middle child. So. Yeah, uh, special one. <laughs> I, well, it's when I say middle, people are like, "Oh, that's the the most independent, the, the <laughs> special child." Uh, and then others will kind of look at you sideways, like, "Oh, you're the you're the middle one." Um, and yeah. it's actually funny that you say that because my younger sister is her name is Aaron. Oh no way! Huh. Is it spelled E R I N? Yes. Nice. I like it. And yeah, growing up in California, we actually, um, we rode horses all the time. The town that I grew up in was, was it's a city now, but it was a little town about, about 10,000 people when I was growing up. And we would, um, we would ride our pony into town and like hitch it up at the, at the drugstore or at the donuts shop or whatever. It was very, very, um, sweet in that way. 
Um, now it's just a big sprawl. <laughs> yeah, as is everything in that area. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Well, researching about you, we've obviously found that you've spent so much of your adult life giving back and helping other people and serving. And I want to know, was this something that your parents instilled in you? Or did you have anyone in your life growing up that sparked that in you, that desire to help other people? Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, there's so many people. And I would say, I guess my mom probably out of my parents, my mom was probably the most sort of altruistic and charitable. Um, she grew up Catholic. And so I think there's a part of of just the um, the values of, of that particular, you know, part of the religion that sort of central. But I think also she just was interested in a lot of things. She, when she stopped flying um, and she was a full-time mom, I think just, you know, having been a very kind of international busy young woman i think she just tried to keep herself busy by finding things to do in our community and in so doing i think made herself of service um in a lot of ways and that definitely if i look back was early inspiration i mean in the 80s when i was a, a young teenager and hiv aids was very much on the rise and a very terrifying reality for so many all of us really it, uh, my mom sort of took a, a training and became, you know, well-versed so that she could be on a hotline um, so that uh, folks could call in and she could be some kind of, you know, just an ear to listen to or someone to kind of direct towards resources and, and information. Um, so I look back at that as being a very um, important thing that I noticed and I recognized and I saw that like my, my friend's moms weren't doing things like that. Not at that time. Mm -hmm. There was little information. So yeah, Mm -hmm. pretty cool. Um, And then, you know, she's from El Salvador, which is a, you know, a country that's gone through a lot of political strife and um, civil war back in the, I was in Guatemala city in a few times in the early nineties. And so I was only a couple hours from the border there and, and you couldn't go anywhere near there at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So during, oh, we, we grew up going back and forth um, a lot as little kids and loved our time in El Salvador and so much family is still down there. Um, but during the war, you know, we didn't go down there at all. And I, and it was a very troubling time. And um, some of her family members were not in a, in a very safe situation. And a lot of them had to leave. Um, a lot of uh, our cousins came to the States to go to school. You know, it was a scary time. So one of the very early things I did in sort of the charity realm was to work on a kind of post-war El Salvador, kind of getting a more positive worldview, I guess I would say, of the country in those early 90s years. And also to kind of support a cultural exchange program, which allowed artists to come back and forth from that region um, to the States. And it was it was a cool, exciting um, opportunity. And I, I felt lucky to be able to do something that kind of connected back to, to the motherland. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And it sounds like that kind of set the tone for work you'd be doing in the future, too. And your mom sounds amazing, by the way. But If we could now shift gears and flash forward to 2003, the day your daughter Grace was born, can you tell us about that day? So I I think about this day a lot, largely because Every Mother Counts is based on that experience, but also her birthday is coming up in a couple of days. Ah. She's about to turn 18. Uh, Happy birthday, Grace. That's exciting. of time, right, that I've been working on this issue. She's like the, the, the physical measurement. Yeah, absolutely. She's like a real life growth calendar right in front of you of this whole journey for you. 
So the day, um, so I, you know, when I was pregnant with Grace, I, I didn't know I was having a girl. So that was one of the, the lovely surprises about arrival. But after a, a really um, great pregnancy and I had come into that phase of my life, very much planning and wanting to become a mom, I had had a first career. I'd gone back to school the first time. I I was very much um, like ready for that phase of my life. And I had some thoughts and ideas about the way that I wanted to enter motherhood. And I wanted to do that in the most kind of peaceful, natural way possible. So I found a midwife um, and I had a doula um, and found a sort of birth team and a birth center here in New York City within a hospital. And I sort of set myself up for the the experience that I had spent some time in my adult years, once I met my husband, thinking about for myself. Mm-hmm. And even with, you know, access to great care and a really incredible team of women, largely, I um, had a postpartum hemorrhage after delivering. And there was nothing that could have prepared me for it, I don't think. Uh, no tests or, or scan or, or, you know, signs. It's one of those, you know, mysteries that come along with um, childbirth. But I had, you know, I'd been in the room with one of my sisters giving birth and I'd seen, like I'd seen physiological birth before. I'd spent time talking about it. I read every book that I could get my hands on. I, I had a really good sense of what was expected and what happened to me was completely unexpected. I didn't deliver my placenta, which is the fourth stage of, of labor. And because of that, the backing physician had to come in and intervene. And and it went from being this incredibly empowering experience to a, a very scary and painful one. And yet, once it was all said and done, I still felt that I was in the right place and in the best care possible for me and, and my daughter. And was able to stay in the room and he was holding her the whole time and it all happened very quickly but you know it was definitely scary you know when you 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 think that the baby's the baby's here and you've already held her and she's already latched on to nurse and all of the things and yet what they don't tell you or what they kind of gloss over is that delivering your placenta is almost like delivering another child and oftentimes you know things can can happen and so i you know i i still kind of like my my feeling of the whole experience was still really, really positive. Even to this day, if I look back, it's not sort of with the trauma of the complication. It's more what happened before that in the sense of, you know, the feelings of empowerment and the feelings of like, I had these options and I had some mm-hmm. incredible team and support system and, you know, loving partner and healthy baby. I just felt so lucky and I, it made me feel like this is what I want for every woman. And I, I did think, you know, gosh, when, when things do go wrong or when they go off the plan that you had intended or um, saw for yourself, what happens to those who don't have access to the care I had that day? I mean, what happens to those who don't have the support system and don't have the resources? And, you know, that turns out to be millions and millions of, of girls and, and, and women. And so I sort of spent those first weeks and, and, and really weeks, I guess, because one of the problems in our, in our healthcare system, even if you have a midwife, is that you tend to not see your provider for about six weeks after you deliver, which is a long time, a long time. Seriously, yeah. And the healthiest of women, um, and especially if you've had a complication. I was able to see my doula and I had a postpartum doula, so I, I again, felt pretty well cared for in that time. But in terms of 
really seeing the person that you've gone through the experience with and um, and understanding what had happened fully and have the opportunity to ask those questions, you know, um, it's just, it's not, it's not soon enough. So I started to think about, you know, how I would use this experience and what I wanted for other women. And I started having those conversations, those more intimate conversations that I wish I'd had before um, delivering great uh, with my friends and my sisters and started to learn that I wasn't alone. A lot of people had scary scenarios um, or feelings of mistreatment or um, not being listened to or, you know, just confusion. And, and it just dawned on me that, you know, for something that so many people go through and that we all have gone through ourselves and in, in becoming, you know, people, um, sure. that yeah. we should be more prepared going into it. And we should feel, we should feel more informed about our bodies and the way that they work and have the options that would allow us to not only survive childbirth, but to thrive. Absolutely. And so were you as shocked as like I was when I first heard that literally, I know as of eight or 10 years ago, like almost a thousand women a day were dying around the world from childbirth and many of those being, you know, preventable. So was it that you all of a sudden heard that, you know, the more you started having these discussions after your experience that you realized that, that it's happening even on a larger scale around the world in poorer countries and whatnot. And that's kind of what was lit the fire under you to do something. Exactly. I, I learned soon, pretty soon after that first return to my midwife from my, my first visit that hundreds of thousands of girls and women died every year back in 2003. And I learned that those numbers really hadn't budged in decades, like literally hadn't. And I thought, wow, gosh, how do we not know that? How did I not know? I mean, I think it, you know, if I could go back to my thoughts about, about that before coming, becoming a mom, I'm sure I thought that every now and again, a horrible event might happen and we might lose a mom. I mean, you know, from time to time, you'll, you'll see a, a television program or a, a movie that will um, depict a scenario like that. And it's, you know, everybody's worst nightmare. That's what I thought too. It rarely happened. Yeah. But every single day, um, I think it's one woman every two minutes. And that's like shocking. Uh, and some countries, you know, if you ask your room full of women in sub-Saharan Africa or in Southeast Asia, um, if they've known someone uh, who died in childbirth, you'll see a lot of hands raised. In the United States, when I ask that question to a lot of audiences, usually, you know, you might, you know, somebody might have a grandparent or someone in their lifetime that they know the story of, um, but they don't have that direct thing. Although um, I've know enough people at this point and have talked about this issue enough that I've also met people who've lost um, moms and, and loved ones. So flash forward then in 2010, you produced a documentary, which Aaron and I watched a, a couple of months back called No Woman, No Cry. And the documentary begins with a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt, which says, quote, where after all do human rights begin? In small places close to home so close and so small that they cannot be seen on any map of the world. And I thought that's a pretty powerful way to open up this documentary. It, it really grabbed my attention for sure. And today, Every Mother Counts has invested, from what I understand, nearly $21 million in programs all over the world, like you talked about in Africa, Latin America, South Asia, and the United States, that focus on making pregnancy and childbirth safe for every mother everywhere. 
No Woman, No Cry illustrates some of the obstacles that women face around the world when trying to access maternal health care. So can you describe for us what are some of those obstacles and how has that shaped the beginning and the programming at Every Mother Counts? Well, first of all, I love that you love that quote. Um, that quote yeah. came up at the very end you know, when, when you make a film. And I, I directed it, financed it, produced it. Uh, it was my... Labor of love, no pun intended. <laughs> and I, I was in school working on my master's in public health at the time and had two toddlers at home. So it was truly a labor of love. Um, but when I, you know, in in the sort of editing and the final piece of it is when I thought we need something to open this up. And that quote I learned about because in one of my courses at studying public health was about the, the kind of human rights approach to maternal health care. And so it just struck me because I think it sort of encapsulates what I thought the movie would do and I was hoping for it too, was that this is a global tragedy. Um, and most people, when they hear about the estimates or the, you know, the numbers of, of women dying, they maybe once they know the numbers and the scope of, of the problem, they would think sub-Saharan Africa or Bangladesh or Guatemala. They would right. think the United States. And so I love that the quote sort of talks about this like human rights, right? Which most, I think most people um, think about is this sort of, you know, it's like the UN, it's, it's the globe, it's, it's peacekeeping. It's, it's, it's something very big and broad and global. Um, and yet bringing that big, broad global thing, it's sort of the global thing, which people call it now the global, local, and that really, um, each of us in our in our own lives and in our own worlds, the way that we understand the world and the way that we um, that we take in information, the way that we you know live and 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 behave, all of that ties into this bigger you know humanity. Sure. Uh, and so I I feel like that quote does such a beautiful job. And you know we celebrated our 10th year last year, and we've been sort of reporting back about that 10 years, that first 10 years, and looking forward to you know what the next 10 will be. And I keep going back to that quote. Because it's as relevant today and in the work and reminding ourselves of, of the why and that, that you have to really be thinking very big and broad and also at the community and at the local level and at the individual level all the time. But as you say, we have we've gone quite a, a far away. I mean, from my experience to then going back to school and then making the film, which took about two years to make, I hadn't thought that I would start a foundation or that Every Mother Counts would exist. I thought that this film was a very needed, you know, piece of work that put voices and faces to global estimates that were just starting to be talked about in 2010 on the global stage. Uh, there were a few heads of state or spouses of heads of state who had taken on this issue in a, in a meaningful way. There were a set of goals that the United Nations had set out to achieve, which were called the Millennium Development Goals. And uh, maternal health was actually the most lagging of the goals by the time that my film came out. And so I really thought this film coming out in 2010 is really important because we can get this, these stories and these women's voices in front of more audiences and we can hopefully, you know, get a bit more energy um, around trying to reach this goal. And then after about a year or so after the film came out and I was on the road with it, I took it back to all of the countries that we filmed in. I, I was at every basically everywhere that anybody invited me, film festivals, but also a lot of um, women's conferences and, uh, and humanitarian conferences. And it just became so clear through the audience question and answer periods afterwards that 
any person who learned about this issue had a story or a connection or felt like I didn't know this before, what can I do? That was the the question that everyone would ultimately ask. And that's the question that I asked as well. And so I tried to think of ways, you know, how do we engage people like that? And at first we sort of started as a campaign and I would sort of direct people to other organizations doing meaningful work where maternal health was one of many pillars, but not a central focus because there really wasn't at the time. Um, and that's when it became pretty clear that Every Mother Counts needed to be more um, and that we could sort of serve a, a different kind of purpose, which is really to, you know, educate the public and engage, you know, everyday citizens about the work, but also to advocate um with and for providers of care who, who, you know, have made, have taken oaths and made the commitment to ensure um, safer outcomes than what we see. And, and so it kind of grew and, and, and grew. Um, and, you know, to date, I would say the storytelling is still very uh, integral to the work we do since No Woman No Cry. We've made about 30 films, but not feature length films. We've done a few series and, uh, and several kind of short form films about the work that our partners do. We've invested $21 million approximately into community-led organizations in the United States and abroad in um, about nine countries. And we have advocated for change at the national, local, and global level. And what that looks like today is really exciting because there has never been as many bills um, introduced that are trying to tackle a part of the maternal health crisis. Um, in the United States, for example, um, as there is today. And what that's called right now is the Momney bus bill. And it's a, it's a series of about 12 bills collectively um, that together pretty much cover everything that should be covered. So it's a really exciting time and, and the work has evolved in such a way that I don't think I could have ever foreseen at the beginning or certainly not uh, when my daughter was born and there's still so much to do. And I would say we are in a very good position to continue to make a, a really big impact given the relationships we built over time. And I think um, the fact that people know what every mother counts is and what we stand for um, and that alone, I think is an important thing in the world. Are there any, as far as that bill, what is the status of that bill right now? It's something that anyone can get behind. I'll tell you that. Okay. Uh, it's so there are two uh, incredible people that initiated the Black Maternal Health Caucus a couple of years ago. Um, that's Representative Alma um, Adams out of North Carolina, okay. and um, Representative Underwood from Illinois. And together, my home state. Woohoo! Hey. Together have been just a, a real force because they come from totally different generations. I think Lauren is the youngest person of color elected to Congress ever, maybe. And she's all, oh yeah, definitely she is. And she's also a nurse. And we've had very, very few health professionals that are members um, of the House or Senate. So um, yep. we really like having people that have that sort of evidence-based knowledge and understanding. Yeah. And so, I mean, we're advocating for it. It continues to be pushed. I was on a webinar yesterday uh, where uh, Representative Underwood spoke. So we're really pushing it in the in a big way. One of the pieces that's I think gotten the most traction and actually is kind of surprising is um, this uh, this push to have Medicaid coverage um, extend through a, a whole year after the baby is born. Often, so Medicaid or Medic yeah Medicaid 
covers more than 50% of the births in the country. And, uh, and also, as I mentioned before, even for myself, I had only, you know, I didn't see a provider for six weeks. And so knowing that about a third of the maternal deaths that happen around the world happen in the postpartum period, it's really important to make sure that um, we don't, you know, as soon as the baby arrives, that we don't forget about mom. And so there's a lot of focus on not only mental health um, in the postpartum period, but also just physical health and making sure that, um, you know, it's like earlier and more frequent visits at, at that stage then. Yeah, yeah. And gotcha. there's a continuity of care that we're really um, advocating for, you know, from really it should start before you're becoming a mom to make sure that when you do become a mom, you're already in your healthiest state. But oftentimes people don't know that they're pregnant for a while or it's not planned. And so, um, you know, we try to, you know, you have to meet people where they are. And so to try to then put as much um, as you can around around the mom or birthing person at that time and then to ensure a safe delivery and then stay with them as long as you can in the postpartum. And I also learned yesterday that you know, a lot of pediatricians even have taken on additional uh, screenings for moms because, you know, moms tend to put themselves last. They tend to, you know, like feed the kids first, feed their spouse first, their partner first, and and do things last. So even with healthcare, that seems to happen. And so when you have a baby, women are maybe more inclined to see the pediatrician, which, you know, you have all these things that have to happen mm-hmm. immediately after the baby's born, but the mom doesn't see a, a provider for six weeks. So in that term period, a lot of pediatricians have been um, you know, in integrating questions around mom's mental health um, and how she's doing because it can be such an isolating time. Um, there's a lot just going through the body hormonally if people already have a predisposition to um, mental health challenges um, beforehand. Some things can also arise within the pregnancy. So there's a lot now that we know. And so trying to, as best we can, um, ask those questions, watch for signs, make sure that teams are talking to each other. Um, so that we can try to, you know, address and, and support the mom in what we can before things get scary or dangerous. That's a really interesting point that you brought up that I didn't realize until now. But when you think about it, when you're going through pregnancy and then going through birth, that's such a foundational part for a mother experiencing that. And then to go several weeks after that and not conf- see a doctor for a checkup or anything and just to be left on your own after that, that's pretty wild. And I can imagine how isolating and alone uh, mothers would feel after that. Yeah, they really do. And I, I think in our, in our time, right, we don't, many of us don't live close to our families or our mm-hmm. parents or our siblings. Um, I mean, I guess we do now uh, during COVID, but, um, <laughs> but you know, so many people with globalization have moved farther and farther away from their homes or their communities. And so, you know, you really do find women who are far from that kind of support and care. Um, mm-hmm. And and that is very debilitating. And I think there's a lot of, you know, we've read a lot about this in the last decade or so, but where women really feel like there's a standard out in society that says I'm supposed to look this way when I'm pregnant, I'm supposed to bounce back. I'm supposed to, you know, physically and also go back to work and have it all together. And it's just kind of oversimplifying something that's so important and really sets up, I think, future health for not only the the mom and um, birthing person, but the whole family, the yeah. foundation of, of, of true health and wellness, which is the thing that, I think as a society, we don't spend as much time on still. Like we know preventative healthcare is is the right way. It's going to save money in the long term. It's going to 
better set us all up as individuals for a healthier life. And yet our society, at least in the West and the United States, is very focused on, you know, interventions, surgeries, you know, addressing a crisis or an emergency, but not necessarily like walking with you throughout your life and, and your sort of cycle of reproductive health. On top of the the full length film, you had mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Christy, that you're also doing a lot of uh, short films as well. And we watched one a while back called "Giving Birth in America" that that you did. That we were shocked to hear that not only is a woman in the U.S. twice as likely to die in childbirth than her mother was two generations ago, which that stat floored me but also that black, brown, and indigenous women are two to three times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. So I hear that, and I, you know, we are, the United States, we're supposed to be the most wealthy, powerful, medically advanced nation on earth. How can this be happening, and, and aren't so many of these deaths still preventable? Absolutely. I think even in the United States, 60% of the deaths um, are preventable. Whereas, as you mentioned at the top of the program, um, I think almost all um, are preventable globally or 90% or more. Um, So, uh, yeah, really good question. Um, The U.S. is the country that spends more on healthcare per capita than any other developed nation in the world. Uh, We are one of only two industrialized countries with a rising maternal mortality rate. And, you know, from the moment I started to study public health and, and look at this issue from the perspective of the United States, um, the, the list of reasons was over-medicalization. In some instances, like too much, too much too soon can happen, um, where you intervene and you kind of interrupt a physiological experience. And, you know, you know, if you have to schedule C-sections or you start to think C-sections are the things that are, are better for the outcome, you know, any kind of surgery can be potentially dangerous and can also set um, a mother up for subsequent complications that are really scar tissue and the things that come along with a major surgery. And uh, another one was just, you know, health generally, right? We have um, this real, I would say, pandemic of chronic health diseases um, in our country, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, those are things that can uh, complicate a pregnancy. Exacerbate the problems, yeah. Exactly. So you'll have a lot of cardiac arrests that are affiliated or associated with pregnancy. Preeclampsia. You know, a lot of women that don't have chronic health conditions can be um, can be diabetic and gestational diabetes, they call it, uh, when they're pregnant. So they test a lot for that if you're in, in consistent care. Um, and then the, the big sort of thing that's become kind of the elephant in the room in the last year and a half, but was something we were already talking about in 2010, was the race piece that you mentioned. Two to three times more likely if you're African-American is like, what? <laughs> um, and and it's, it's, it, it's not a, a socioeconomic um, correlation there. Like you could have an educated black woman who is at higher risk than a, an uneducated white woman. Um, and so that has really begged the question, like, is this racism? And a, 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 an amazing kind of 
OB-GYN activist, birth justice kind of warrior, um, Dr. Joya Creer Perry, um, she often says that it's not race, it's racism. And so there's been, you know, a real, um, you know, a moment that we've all been a part of, a reckoning, I would say, of, you know, what is racism, what what is the long-term impact of racism, like microaggressions on a lifespan of a Black woman throughout her life that might mm-hmm. weaken her, that might set her up for a more fragile or delicate um, pregnancy scenario. Um, the treatment that we've heard time and time again um, of people of color through our medical systems is this sense of like this there's actually there's actually research that says that you know there were physicians that thought that black women didn't feel pain in the same way that white women i've heard of that it's so absurd so this is what we're dealing with i think um a lot of the hospitals and institutions which are all having to really take a good look at you know the cases when they do happen, the maternal mortality cases in their hospitals, but in their cities and their states. Um, there are more review boards across the country now that are starting to report in a more consistent way so that we can really understand more about what's happening through the data. But um, this this implicit, explicit bias that exists in all of our institutions, and probably most of us in some way or another, is harmful to black women and families. Um, And then our native women are right behind them. And then our Latinx women are not so far behind them. Um, But it's, 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 it's troubling. It's disturbing. It's unfair. It's unjust. And that's the part of the work that has kind of evolved the sort of human rights approach to a birth equity, birth justice kind of centered sort of, you know, collective goal, I think, around this issue now. And then as if everything you've been talking about already, Chrissy, wasn't, you know, as if there weren't enough challenges globally already, can you tell us about how the maternal health landscape has changed since COVID and what types of things are every mother's count, every mother counts trying to do to respond to that? It's that's evolved too. I mean, in the very beginning of COVID, you know, we're based here in New York City, and New York was kind of the epicenter in the very early days. But I had just come back from a, a trip with Every Mother Counts from India a couple of days before we went into lockdown here, and so really interesting to see what's happened in India since that period of time, and and how New York has has really learned so much and so quickly, and I think shared a lot of that knowledge a lot of the rest of the states in the United States. Um, so initially we kind of stopped and, you know, what, what can we do right now? And what do we need to do in New York city? And we were hearing a lot of stories and reports in the newspaper and, you know, on television about um, families who were terrified to go in the hospital to give birth. So pregnant people who were terrified to see their physicians or midwives or whomever, and also terrified. Sure. Well, because our hospitals, like, even our best hospitals, they didn't have um, adequate PPE at the time. Um, and, you know, on the side of the healthcare providers, they were terrified of not being protected. And on the side of the patients, they were terrified of being in the hospital and being exposed. So it was just a real mess, honestly, on every side and um, incredibly terrifying. And we saw something that I don't think we'd seen before, which is something they were calling maternity refugees. So you'd find, um, you know, people who I sort of alluded to that a lot of people came home to live with their parents during this time. I think if anybody knew anyone who lived 
outside of New York City where they could have access to somebody that didn't have strict policies or wasn't as, as scary yet at the time to deliver, they would go to those places. And so it's never a good situation to sort of seek care late in your pregnancy with somebody that doesn't know you or your history and you don't have that relationship. Um, it's a little bit like giving birth in a disaster um, zone or after an earthquake or a hurricane. It can really be quite scary for everybody involved. Um, so we started to get involved and joined the governor's task force for maternity care during that time, just trying to broaden the definition of what a safe um, alternative birth site could be. And I mentioned that I gave birth in a birth center within a hospital. That birth center closed a few years ago. So there were really a lot of options that were outside of a hospital setting that felt like, you know, you had access to the care and you were in a right in the right place where you if you needed emergency obstetric care you could be um, referred quickly so we worked on just you know getting that um, definition broadened so that we could help to support the um, the standing up of a, a freestanding birth center in midtown um, called the jazz birth center and then we sort of brought in from there um, we started working on getting ppe to community-based partners and also even people in the hospitals that didn't have adequate PPE for some reason, maternity care, even though giving birth is such a, you know, there's so many people involved and there's so much that can happen in terms of bodily fluids and whatnot. They weren't prioritizing maternity care in hospitals. They were prioritizing ER and, and Uh. which I get on one level, but for birthing people, not, not great. So um, you know, it was just chaos in the beginning. And then I'd say we started just really communicating closely with all of our partners, the partners across the United States, our partners outside of the United States who were in a little bit of a lag in terms of how the pandemic reached them and what they needed. And so by the time it got to India, we were able to then do emergency grants that supported PPE there, um, food security, like you kind of go back to what are the things that people need um, in a state of emergency? And it's the basics, food water, housing, um, yep. healthcare, but um, it's really those basics. And so a lot of our partners, that's what they were providing for their communities. And we sort of you know, supported them in that. A lot of our providers also moved to telehealth. Telehealth is obviously not a new thing, but I would say in this time, it allowed people to continue to stay closely connected to their patients um, without having them leave their homes or having to come in and expose themselves. And so um, they would send you know, one of our partners, Jenny Joseph, Uh, who's in central Florida, she sort of created these kits where they had um, blood pressure kits and a smartphone or something so that she could send them to the patient. They could, you know, communicate, you know, she could, they could weigh themselves. They could do their blood pressure. They could, you know, they could get some of the things that would happen in those checkups, but do it at home. And um, it was incredibly, incredibly meaningful in those, in those periods of time. And I think um, we'll, not go away anytime soon. I think for certain things, um, mental health included, uh, the telehealth is an incredible option. And then lastly, I'll just say we we helped, we worked with some community-based partners who um, launched a platform called Just Birth Space, which is, um, it's just focused on a, a few counties in New Jersey and New York, but helping to navigate folks through those hospital policies that were changing on a daily, weekly basis. Which is awesome, by the way. We went to the website. It's for our listeners. It's justbirthspace.org. And we'll put that in the episode notes as well. But but yeah, very cool. They can they can literally text in a question and get a response back about healthcare issues for a maternity. So very well set up and the group of women that are running it. It's just a it's an amazing group of women. So yeah, awesome organization for sure. Yeah. 
I know we're just about out of time. So what are your hopes for Every Mother Counts over the next five to 10 years? Gosh, I mean, I try as much as I can to look ahead because there's so much always happening in in the day-to-day and in the moment. But I've really been, even just coming into 2020, I was really trying to look bigger picture and think about how, um, how, you know, what are the things that we've learned that, and where are our strengths? Like, you know, some, some have been surprising, not intended. And then others were very intentional, like the storytelling piece. The storytelling is going to continue to be very central. I mean, I have plans to continue the Giving Birth in America series. We've made six so far. They're all. Yeah, those are great. Yeah. We sort of look state by state. Um, and we have 50 states and we've only made six films. So we could continue doing that for a while. Um, yeah. As well, uh, you know, we have, we have a trip planned in Tanzania. We're able to start to travel again to see some of our partners firsthand. And that's always an opportunity to um, be able to learn more about the work as the work's evolving because our partners really, they really do respond to the communities. You know, they come from the communities that they serve. They they are trusted. And so for us to kind of have the opportunity to really learn from them and be responsive around them is is really important. As I said, the legislation piece is very exciting because there's momentum that has taken 11 years to get to this place, but we're in this incredible moment, I think, where um, where a lot is possible. And as much as women's health has been politicized and continues to be in many parts of our country, I think there is consensus around, you know, maternity care um, and family health. And so, you know, we're going to just keep trying to you know, not water it down, not dumb it down so that it gets passed, but to really make sure that it's it's thoughtful. The health disparities piece is very present in a lot of um, these bills. The, um, you know, before COVID, we didn't talk about health disparities in the way. I think we all understand uh, what, like, how, how the country is um, separated and divided in that, in that sense for the health um, disparities and racial disparities. So, um, yeah, I see a lot of opportunity. We've had a lot of great partnerships form over the years, like real thought partners. We doubled our grant making in the United States last year. I, I hope to continue to wow. that. And then really what's very front and center for me is, you know, like I said, I didn't plan to have an organization, a foundation, you know, that would be around for 11 years. And so to be thinking about the next 10 to 11 years with how do we set up the the proper foundation so that we can grow, but not grow too fast and, and to hold on to all of the things that we um, have done well, um, but to have some more support for our team, because we're, we're a pretty small team and we've been doing so, so much. And, you know, it's one of those things when there's something like, you know, a mission like ours to make pregnancy and childbirth safer, every mother everywhere. Um, it's very ambitious. <laughs> it may not happen in our lifetimes, um, but I want to do all that we can to uh, bring those numbers down. And they have come down. Those numbers we awesome. talked about in the beginning, they're, they're, they're coming down. Not fast enough, but they're coming down. So, yeah, every mother. That's everywhere. amazing. Is there any book that you've read throughout your life that had a major impact on you? So many. I'm a big fan. I I was thinking about this when we spoke before starting um, the conversation, but um, I was going to say something I just read recently, which I love this book called Three Mothers. And it's about the mothers of um, MLK, Malcolm X, and um, uh, James Baldwin. Oh, interesting. I hadn't heard of that book. Behind these great men are strong black mothers 
Um, it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend. But in thinking about my whole life and the things I go back to, and 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 I'm a big um, Emerson fan, and I own a couple of first books. And you know, again, I guess I'm in this mindset of seeing my child become a, an independent and a you know uh, an adult. Um, self-reliance is one of my favorite um, pieces by Emerson. And so I think that's one. It's like it, 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 it's something that's been important to me. And yet, as I think about how important it's been to me and I realize how much is needed in terms of being beyond the self and beyond our individual selves and really thinking as a collective, it's something that I feel like I want to revisit now with a different lens, the lens of today the lens of this issue or the lens of um, my worldview. I love that. Those both sound really fascinating. And this leads us to our very last question that we ask all of our guests. Yeah. So Christy, we'd love to hear your response on this. What is your advice to us and our listeners regarding how we can help make the world a better place? I think intentionality is so important. And I do feel that by setting an intention of like you want to make the world a better place and you meditate on it, you pray on it, you breathe it, um, you will, it will happen. You know, if we take it into our, our, our everyday, um, our sort of, you know, at the cellular level, um, which is the beauty, beautiful thing about meditation and prayer and things like that. And, you know, I'm a runner, so I, Often my running is a sort of meditation in motion, but I yeah. a mantra like I want the world. If you know, you set that intention. My daughter calls it manifesting. You manifest. I like that. Like, sure. Yeah. I think there's a lot of power um, to thought and, and and intention. I'm reading Gary Zukoff right now, and it's all about everything you just said. So absolutely. Christy, you have been an absolute delight. For our listeners, you can go to everymothercounts.org. We will put that in the episode notes as well. Thank you so much. We have so many other things we wanted to talk about, but we're out of time. So maybe sometime in the future when you have some other cool things coming up, we'll have you back. So thank you so much and have a great rest of your day, Christy. It was so nice talking to you all. Thank you. Thank you. In today's episode, Christy mentioned the Build Back Better Act. Well, I have a favor to ask you. Now more than ever, please take action today to support Maternal Health and the Build Back Better Act, an end-of-year package that includes federal funds for Medicaid extension to a year postpartum in all 50 states and all eligible investments from the Black Maternal Health Momnibus. This bill does so much to help all the issues that we have been talking about in today's episode. You will find a link in the episode notes where you can, in about 60 seconds, send a letter to your congressional representative in support of this act. It's so easy. You simply submit your name and address, and it automatically forwards the letter in your name. I just did it in between sips of my coffee. Guys, it literally just takes a minute, and you can help make a big difference. And for those that can do more please jump over to everymothercounts.org and consider making a donation to show your support for the great work that they are doing. Special thanks to our guest, Christy Turlington Burns. To learn more about her and the work she is doing, you can visit everymothercounts.org. Thanks to our producer, Noah Existe, and editor, Joe Tompoco. 
Our music was written and performed by Nadia Importante. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast brightened your day in any way, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you have a suggestion for a guest or have any ideas on how we can improve our show, please send us an email to betterplaceprojectpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at betterplaceproj for updates on our show. Look for small ways to be kind to others this week, and that will help make the world a better place. Make the world.